Welcome to the Reeves Tale, a medieval miscellany with Andrew Reeves, a place where I discuss things about the Middle Ages that I find interesting. Look at the shape of an iPad, a tablet, or an e-reader. It's rectangular, right? And why is that? Well, it's because the paper in a notebook was traditionally rectangular. And that's because books and paper were traditionally rectangular. And have you ever wondered why books and paper are rectangular? The answer, of course, is that animals are oblong. If you'd like to know more about how we got from oblong animals to rectangular paper, well, that's the subject of today's episode, which also happens to be <clears throat> two weeks late, for which I blame end-of-semester duties followed by a mild cold. In today's episode, we'll be talking about the medieval book as a physical object. So I'd like for you to imagine what you think a medieval book is. You're probably picturing a large, heavy volume with cream-colored, off-white pages and lettering that you'd think of as calligraphic. If you've seen illuminations shared on social media, you might think of marginal images of knights, snails, and the like. So let's start with a book like that and work from there. A book of pages between hardcovers is called a codex, whose plural is codices, and I'll be using that term throughout the rest of this episode. Now, I'll tell you how codices were made, and I'll start with barnyard animals. For you see, the pages of most medieval manuscripts were made of parchment. If you already know what parchment is and how it was made, you can skip ahead a bit. If you're still with me, Parchment is a thin writing surface that comes from animal skin, usually sheep, goats, or calves. Yes, the pages of the medieval book had the same origin as leather. In general, parchment made from calf skin was called vellum. Can you think of an English word that sounds like vellum? What about veal? Yes, that's right. Both veal and the word vellum came from the same Latin root for the word for calf. So let's talk about how you got from skin to parchment. In the first place, when an animal had been slaughtered, you'd skin it and take the hide. You'd thoroughly wash the hide and then soak it for several days in a lime solution. Once the hair was loose enough, you'd pull it out, and then you'd get a curved blade and scrape the hide so you got most of the rest of the hair off. What you'd then do is take the hide and stretch it out on a frame, pulling it incredibly tightly so that it would get thin, and you'd then have it dry out. While it was stretched on the frame, you'd take a crescent-shaped blade to scrape away any remaining hair and you'd gradually stretch the parchment over the course of its drying, pulling it tighter and tighter to make it thinner and thinner. What you'd do then, once the sheet of parchment had dried, is you'd cut it into sheets. You'd then take a sheet and fold it in half. Sometimes you'd fold it in half twice, especially for smaller books. You'd then place these folded sheets on top of each other and sew them together. If you'd used sheets you'd folded twice, you'd cut the edges along the top. So now you'd have a gathering of 8 to 10 folios. 
What's a folio? That's just fancy academic talk for a page. But when we're talking about manuscripts, we don't number the front and back as separate folios. There's just one folio. We refer to a folio's recto side, which is the front, and then the verso side, which is the back. We call a gathering of 8 to 10 folios a choir. Usually, once you'd made the choir, or set of choirs, you would rule it with very light lines, and you would write in those choirs before you'd bound all of the choirs together into a codex. Once you had written in all of the choirs, you would then sew them together, and you would sew them to a spine between two covers. And those covers were often boards that had been covered in leather. And that is how you get a codex. And guess what? Since animals are oblong, the sheets made from animal hides would be rectangular. And since the sheets were rectangular, the codices were rectangular. And that, my friends, is why animals are oblong and so too are books. But wait, you say. Books aren't parchment anymore. No, they're not. But in the 13 and 1400s, as bookmakers started shifting from parchment to paper, they kept the original rectangular shape. And so it has been with books right down to the present. And since the electronic tablet was designed to mimic the shape of the paper page, your iPad is rectangular because livestock are oblong. So next time you're driving down the road and see some cows, think of their shape and how it marks the shape of your books right down to the present. But now I'm going to swerve aside. I'm not going to talk much about what we'd call deluxe manuscripts. If you've ever seen a medieval manuscript, chances are it was one of these. All the leaves were a nice cream-colored off-white, the text was neatly laid out, and it was lavishly illustrated. It might have even had real gold leaf in the illustration, in which case we would call that illustration illumination. But those manuscripts were a tiny minority of most medieval manuscripts. They were super expensive, each one having been custom ordered, and indeed they were often display objects to be seen rather than to be read. After all, all that parchment was expensive, and if you were a rich church, you wanted people to see that you could afford something like a display book. Most medieval books, though, were meant to be used. And it's those books I want to talk about. In the first place, the buyer of a codex was thinking in terms of cost. Those deluxe codices were super expensive, and their pages were almost uniformly smooth. But you know what? Most buyers of codices were on a budget as were their makers, about whom I'll talk more in a bit. And so, the makers of these codices would use every bit of parchment they could. And so the parchment would often have holes in it because, well, animals might have wounds, they might have bug bites, or someone might have screwed up and torn the parchment, and then it had to be sewn or glued back together. So in the first place, most working books in the Middle Ages usually had all sorts of imperfections in the parchment. You'll have tears that are stitched together. You'll have outright holes in the page that the scribe would have written around. 
And often, if you can't quite get a fully rectangular folio, there'll be bits missing from the top or bottom corner of the page. The parchment itself might not be the extremely thin, fine sheets you get of vellum. It might be a little bit thicker. And these working books were often a lot smaller than display books, since their goal was to be used. You know what's even more important? A great many books in the Middle Ages weren't bound into hard covers. Lots and lots of them were a choir or set of choirs whose cover might just be stiffened parchment. And that should make perfect sense. Even in our own day, most of our books are paperbacks, since they're cheaper. But Andrew, you might object, why have I never seen one of these booklets? That's a very good question. And, well, think about it. Do modern paperbacks last? No, they don't. Not really. So your average medieval book was a paperback whose ultimate destiny was to get used until it got worn out. And then you'd recycle it, since old parchment was often used for things like getting turned into glue. Indeed, your average parchment booklet had a lifespan of about only 15 years. Maybe you wanted one of these unbound notebooks to last longer. And in that case, you would sew it into a codex. And even in modern times, when you're going through a codex, you can often recognize a former choir that got sewn in. The handwriting will often be different, the outer pages will be more worn, and often the size itself will be a little bit different. And that's something else to think about a codex. Most codices were what we'd call miscellanies. That is, lots and lots of different materials written in one volume. There's a few reasons for this. One is that books were expensive. The other is that handwriting was highly abbreviated. And of course, a highly abbreviated text makes sense, right? Parchment is expensive, and so you want to make every bit count. So there were certain things that you would never write out. One of these is what they called sacred names, nomina sacra in Latin. So for example, Latin for Lord is Dominus. But everyone knew that if you wrote DNS with a line over the top, that was to be read Dominus. Jesus was written as IHS. Why IHS? Well, it's a long story. But the short version is that in the Greek alphabet, the capital eta, the A sound, looks like an H as a capital letter. And that's the second letter of Jesus' name in Greek, Jesus. Wait, you might ask, why, why was the name abbreviated with a Latin letter, a Greek letter, and then a Latin letter? I don't know, man. Habits die hard, and the first Christian writers had been Greek or Greek speakers. So anyway, the result of highly abbreviated text and expensive books was that your average codex would have lots of different book-length works in it. And you know, that shouldn't be surprising. Think about the Bible. It's actually 60 to 70 odd books, depending on your religious tradition, and they're bound into one volume between two covers. And here's where we'll go on a digression about the origin of the codex itself. If you think about books in ancient times, what do you think of? That's right, the scroll. And a scroll wasn't parchment, but was rather made of papyrus, which is the stuff that our word for paper comes from. 
You got papyrus by taking the pulp, that is the inside of a papyrus reed, laying these pulps down in a crosswise pattern, and then hammering a bunch of them flat into a writing surface. In general, you wrote on only one side of the papyrus sheet, and thus the papyrus scroll, because the back side wasn't very good as a writing surface. The ancient Egyptians had used papyrus scrolls. The ancient Greeks had used papyrus scrolls. And the ancient Romans had used papyrus scrolls. How did you read a scroll? Well, you unrolled it, read the bit that was unrolled, and then rolled it up again at the other side. You might do this top to bottom or left to right, depending on the time and place. Originally, in ancient times, you would call a book one scroll, or rather, one scroll, a book. So if you go back to early Christianity, one book of the Bible, one scroll. But why did papyrus scrolls fall out of fashion? A big part of that was Christianity. After all, Christianity is a religion of the book, right? Well, if you want to find something in a scroll, how do you do that? That's right, you have to go through the process of unrolling and rerolling until you get what you want. But suppose that you're looking for something in the written text of the Bible, because that's where authority lies. It's much easier to look it up in a codex. It is remarkably easy to flip through pages to try to find what you're looking for. Indeed, even today, it's usually quicker to flip through a paper book if you're looking for something than to try to find it in an ebook. Thus, if you wanted to look up something in the Bible, you'd want to have a text that you could flip through. And so the codex started to edge out the scroll, especially in the late Roman Empire and early Middle Ages when Christianity came to dominate. For the same reason, parchment began to edge out papyrus. Parchment is much better suited to writing on both sides than papyrus. And indeed, it's very difficult to tell on a parchment folio which side was the side that was originally hair, and which side was what we call the flesh side, that is, the interior side of the animal skin. Fun fact, as long as I'm digressing. The one part of medieval Europe where they kept using papyrus was at the Lateran, that is, the palace of the papacy. So popes were still issuing official documents on papyrus long after the rest of Western Europe had moved to parchment. And indeed, they were doing so long after the Middle East had moved on from papyrus to paper. Paper, after all, got introduced from China into the Middle East in the 7 and 800s. So basically, the papacy was the last organization on earth to use papyrus, only phasing it out for parchment in the 11th century, that is, the 1000s. And that's maddening for historians. Because, you see, parchment actually lasts. It lasts for a while because it's really durable, being animal skin. Papyrus, though, doesn't. It holds up okay in the very dry climes of the desert of Egypt, but anywhere else it rots away pretty quickly, which means that we don't have many papal documents from before the 1000s. If Dan Brown actually knew anything, he'd have made the lack of documents from before the 1000s, the center of his major conspiracy thinking. But I digress. Okay, so I've detoured through the papyrus scroll to the rise of the Codex, and now I'll return to the parchment Codex of the Middle Ages. A Codex would usually have several books, and the books in a Codex depended on who owned that Codex. 
A priest's book would usually have material related to what we call the liturgy, that is, the rituals of Catholic worship. It would also usually have stuff related to canon law, that is, church law. This canon law material would be anything from bishops' regulations to sometimes stuff from larger guidebooks or even the text of councils of the whole church in Rome. A priest's book might also have medical recipes, it might have guides to hearing confession, and it might have a guide to preaching a sermon. Oftentimes, when bishops would issue statutes and require parish priests to keep copies of them, the priests would write these statutes in whatever blank spaces they could find in their books, often in the flyleaves in the front and back. And composite codices bring me to those books owned by laypeople. Now, now, most laypeople were illiterate. Most, but not all. Heck, by the end of the Middle Ages, literacy might have been as high as 10%. Medieval laypeople who could read were usually aristocrats or wealthy commoners, and they'd often buy all kinds of books. The very rich and powerful would have deluxe books that would have the prayers that monks would say at the seven designated hours of the day. These laypeople wanted to pray those same prayers. These prayers were in so-called books of hours, which began to appear at the end of the 1200s and were often lavishly illustrated and very expensive. More often, lay people would own miscellanies. And these are great because you can tell what a lay person's interests were by what they put in their books. So there's one that's now in Oxford's Bodleian Library. Its shelf mark is Oxford Bodleian Digby 86. By the way, shelf mark is just a unique designator for each manuscript. It gives you the city, Oxford, the library, Bodleian, and then what collection in the library and number of that collection it's in, in this case, Digby 86. So Digby 86, it's got religious texts, it's got short moral stories, but it also has things like party games and more besides. It's a kind of collection of all sorts of books that you would like. So where did clergy and then lay people get their books? Once again, if you're thinking of a medieval manuscript, your first thought might be a scriptorium, that is a writing center inside a monastery. You might even be picturing the one from the movie The Name of the Rose. And yes, in the early Middle Ages, most of the work of bookmaking had been in monasteries or other churches, since, after all, most books were religious in character. But something happened in Europe towards the end of the 1100s, and that something was the rise of the university. The story of the university would be a whole other episode in itself, but what's important for our purposes is that universities created a much, much greater demand for books than had existed previously. The demand for books caused largely by the university, but also by a growing use of books more generally, led to the rise of the stationer as a business. These stationers weren't part of a church or monastery. These guys were lay people running a business. How'd you buy a book from a stationer? Most books you ordered from a stationer were custom jobs, just as books had been in the days of monastic book production. You'd say that you'd wanted certain texts, and then you'd also say that they could add other things that they thought would be appropriate to. But then there were certain books that stationers had that they would have on hand for customers to buy off the shelf. 
This was especially true of things that everyone needed. So you could probably get an off-the-shelf copy of a lectionary, that is the Bible readings for the yearly cycle, or the sentences by Peter Lombard, the theology textbook of the universities, or of course a law textbook. And eventually, stationers figured out a way that you could reproduce these books really quickly. How? Well, you'd take a book like, say, The Sentences, and then break it apart into its choirs. You'd then find university students who needed the extra money. And yes, university students looking for part-time side hustles is a phenomenon as old as the university itself. And you'd seek out students, because they were, of course, literate. You'd then have these students take a choir and then they would copy out a whole bunch of copies of the same choir. And you would mark that choir so you would know what book they were a part of. You would then take these choirs and put them together, and that would give you many different copies of the same book. This system was called the Pacia system, and it allowed for the first mass reproduction of books before eventually printing would get introduced in the late 1400s. So by the late Middle Ages, you had a thriving book culture that allowed books to spread widely. A last thing I'd like to note is that the best way to tell what people were actually reading in the Middle Ages is from the evidence of the physical book. After all, you can tell oftentimes how popular a book was by how many manuscripts it survives in. You can also use documents from stationers to see what books were often getting ordered. If a book appears frequently on stationers' lists, it's probably pretty popular. But of course, we can also just do kind of manuscript counting, which is not necessarily a hard and fast rule, but gives a general sort of rule of thumb. Have you ever taken a British literature class in your first year of undergrad or in your senior year of high school? Do you remember reading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight? That haunting story of conflicting obligations, where fairy meets the ordinary world, this story of strange elven creatures, this story that eventually got an A24 adaptation? Yeah, that survives in precisely one manuscript, meaning that the number of people who read it at the time it was written was statistically close to zero. You know what does survive in multiple manuscripts? The dreadfully boring Beavis of Hampton. The story of a knight who defeats all his enemies, gets all these amazing magic items, is totally awesome at everything, and honestly, if you're interested in that sort of thing, just Google Beavis of Hampton. My point is that often the things that come down to us from the Middle Ages are not what medievals valued, and we can tell what they valued, well, by what they were buying from stationers. Now, I could talk a lot more about manuscripts, but I figure I'll wrap up here. This is a quick run-through of a lot of the stuff I work on, and in future episodes, I'll go into more depth on different aspects of the medieval manuscript. If you'd like to support this work of mine that I'm doing in addition to my normal duties as a professor, please go over to the Patreon link and subscribe. I'm Andrew Reeves, and this is The Reeves Tale. Thanks for listening.